0: To Matthew chapter 7. We're on the second from last message on the Sermon on the Mount that has occupied us so far this year. Next week, a special uh, emphasis for our anniversary. In two weeks, we'll hear from the last paragraph of Matthew 7, and then in three weeks, I intend to pass on to something from the Old Testament. And you'll find out what that is when the time comes. Matthew 7. I'm going to read the words of Jesus and they're warning words, they're serious words. They're not comforting words necessarily here as we begin at verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of God. I had to check the dates because I couldn't believe it's already been 40 years, but it was in 1978 that the world was stunned by wire service reports coming out of a place no one had ever heard of called Jonestown in Guyana in Central and South America, because there an American minister, Reverend Jim Jones, had led a large group, several hundreds of people from his church that was at once in California called the People's Temple, Jones led them to establish a commune on land they bought in a rather remote jungle area that nobody in America, I would say, had ever heard of before. But of course, if you're old enough to remember this, what caused the wire services to literally explode and the American public to respond with absolute stunned dismay and amazement was the fact that Jim Jones had led men, women, and children, hundreds of them, on a rather stupid, groundless act of mass suicide in which they drank Kool-Aid laced with some kind of poison. And the pictures came back to the United States of bodies, scores of bodies strewn across a jungle Encampment in the hot sun of Central America. The amazing thing to me about this was to learn later on that the people who had joined the people's temple and had gone upon Reverend Jones's ill-fated errand of residence down there in that jungle area had sold their homes, they'd given up most of their possessions, they'd turned their money over to the communal life But the interesting thing was that the majority of them, it could be shown, had started out their spiritual lives in fundamentalist churches where the Bible was taught, where the cross of Jesus was taught, where the resurrection of Christ was taught. They were people who were not entirely ignorant and should not have been as gullible as they apparently were, but nevertheless, they responded to the charisma of Jim Jones who offered them job training, marriage counseling, drug rehabilitation, and a number of very practical good things before he led them on a foolish errand of a misguided prophet. Under the wide umbrella of nominal Christianity, there are many kinds of messages that are conveyed in our day and in days gone by. Messages that take some little piece, perhaps, of biblical truth or the gospel of Christ and twist it or shape it or misapply it in some manner until people end up really off track, involved in something that is no more the real teaching of Christ than aspirin is the same as arsenic. I think that Jim Jones' followers lost sight of the difference between aspirin and arsenic, and they died for it. I was amazed, I remember as a young man at that time, that So many Christian people could be that badly deluded. But yet, that's what Jesus is warning about here as he is near the end of this Sermon on the Mount, and we certainly can think of, and I could list, I will list some of the many texts of the New Testament that warn about this same subject, of being aware of false teaching. Even if you are truly standing firm in Christ, Jesus saw fit to give a serious warning, a shocking warning really, almost, to say, Watch out for this. This is going to happen. I don't want you to be taken aback by it or fooled by it. We live in a day that Ephesians four fourteen is true when as Paul said there, Christian people can be like infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of doctrine and by the cunning craftiness of men today it's not by some you know weirdo some guy wearing burlap and having a long beard and eating grasshoppers like john the baptist it's actually more likely to come via someone on a tv show with a huge auditorium of 5000 people listening to him with their bibles open and their amens sounding And he, with his $100 haircut and $2,000 suit, is glib and smooth and a great showman. Sounds very convincing, an accomplished speaker. He probably has a few books out there somewhere that you could buy. And you would listen and you would say, wow, anything that gathers a group like that must have something going for it in the Christian faith. And, of course, Christian words are being used Christian concepts are being communicated in some way, whether or not it's fully connected in the manner of biblical doctrine. Jesus, the Son of God, declared that not all roads lead equally to God. He said right here in this passage that there will be a day. He didn't elaborate on what that day was, but we know he means the great day of final judgment. The day that comes when, on that day, says verse 22, some places in the New Testament the word day is capitalized. For the, it's the day of final judgment and accounting. When many will say, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? I'm sure you're ready to receive us and give us your greatest crown of glory. And He says, Who are you? Imagine the shock that that kind of teaching presented because it says Jesus is looking for something exclusive, something that has you make a choice between walking on the narrow path that we've just heard from him about this in the last week or so. Pastor Light brought for that part forward to you and the broad path that all of society is on and you have to choose. So I want to try to bring forward what some notions that are in this Section here. First of all, just verse 15, which is giving us the warning Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is the warning about the reality, the reality of false teaching. It's real. You better believe it. Don't be naive. Quite a few years ago, I gave my wife an anniversary necklace. I hope she still has it. It's a simple gold chain with one. Little stone mounted on it. And you ladies would particularly probably take the measure of it and say, wow, that looks like a diamond, a rather large diamond, at least a carat and a half, maybe two carats. And you'd say, what in the world is a preacher doing buying a diamond that size? Well, the preacher didn't buy a diamond that size. The preacher bought what the jewelry trade calls a cubic zirconium. Jewelers know the difference, it's an artificial diamond costs much, much less, the size of it in a real diamond, I guess, would have been thousands of dollars. I can assure you it wasn't thousands of dollars. But the point I'm making from mentioning that is I gave myself, my wife, something that I knew was artificial. I knew it wasn't what it was made to look like, but I wasn't doing it to deceive her. In fact, I immediately told her, this is a fake. It's a it's a good-looking fake, but it's a fake. And there's a great difference if I was selling her something with a purpose of deception. And Jesus is saying that's what false teaching does. It's a good-looking fake, but it means to deceive. It means to be received as something real, which it is not. And this is a problem all the way back in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23 tells there about a definition of false prophets where the speaker says that these people speak visions from their own minds while a true prophet stands in the counsel of the Lord, hears his word, and speaks from the mouth of the Lord. Absolutely different, isn't it? To know that you're speaking words that God has given you and your own words that are inventions of your mind. 2 Peter in the New Testament, chapter 2, Peter was very blunt. He said, These men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct. They are springs without water. Now, we might make the allowance, I'm not sure it seems like Peter makes that allowance, although he doesn't emphasize it too much, that there are false prophets who are such in ignorance. They think, perhaps, that they're speaking something true when, indeed, they're not. And that's just a result of them not learning better or being too forward in matters that are too deep for them to to, uh, spread their mind over. But Jesus certainly is regarding the idea that many of them have intent, have deliberate intent to fool and deceive those that they come to with an aberrant message. First John four one, we read there John's words brothers do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see if they are of God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. 2 Corinthians 11.13 Paul there speaks against false prophets or false apostles he calls them who are deceitful workmen masquerading as angels of light. So this is nearly all the major apostles, Peter and John and Paul, weighing in on this subject, Jesus himself speaking it and saying, look, these aren't going to be people who will come to you and snarl at you and bear their fangs and say, I'm a false prophet and I'm here to destroy you. No. They're coming intending, or saying at least, that they intend to lead people into and by the Word of God. And yet Jesus uses the comparison of a sheep and a wolf." And everybody knows sheep don't attack wolves. It's always the other way around, right? If those two animals are isolated together, one of them's going to suffer harm, and it's not going to be the wolf. In the 21st century, false prophets often come under a disguise that we could call, using a pun, a sheepskin. If you don't remember, college degrees and university graduate degrees were once called a sheepskin. I'm not sure why that was. I think somebody told me once that they were they were once actually the diploma was printed or written on an animal skin. I'm not sure about that. But we certainly use that term for someone might have a doctorate. We say, "Oh, he's got his sheepskin." And so he comes forth with great learning. And listen, we as presbyterians among other protestant denominations, we value learning. We want our clergy to be educated. We want them to have studied Hebrew and Greek and church history and apologetics and hermeneutics and lots of things that they're supposed to understand before they expound the Word of God. So it's not that we're against education. But education alone is no guarantee of orthodoxy. That certainly is seen all over the place today. There are people with doctorates who write things that are just obviously false. I could bring books into the pulpit and stack them up for you. People who uh, make a lot of money on the books that they sell and have quite a reputation of giving lectures around the land. And what they're saying is disagreed with by many, many scholars, but they're able to call an audience because it's unusual, it's out out of the ordinary and kind of interesting, kind of dramatic. Jesus says we need discernment. The false is everywhere and it has to be understood or you'll be taken in by it. The reality of false teaching is like warning sheep that a wolf is coming. Well, he goes on then, secondly, in verses 16 to 19 to talk about how there is an obvious exposure of false teaching. And how is that? It's by the fruit that it produces or fails to produce. And that is primarily seen in the lives of either the false teacher himself or those who follow his teaching. If you want to know something about how genuine is this, how blessed of God is this, look at the life. What does it produce? Because the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ is a transformational message. By the Holy Spirit, when people bow to Jesus Christ as Lord, call him Lord, begin to serve him, begin to follow the Word of God, their lives will change. They must change. It doesn't mean that they were the worst people they could ever be before they met Christ, but they might have been a a wonderful person, uh, a moral, upstanding individual, but their life will change when they encounter Christ. The Holy Spirit goes to work in a person, slowly, gradually changing people into the image of God. The Bible calls this primarily the fruit of the Spirit, which could be studied, and you probably know how Paul outlines it in one place, calls that fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Not one of those characteristics was uh, operating on a splendid level in my life before I met Christ, and I'm not sure how splendid the level of their operation is today. But I'd like to hope that those things are visible in some ways, in ways that they would not be without Christ. So we look for these things. And, you know, if there's, if there's one crowning word to put over all of them, I concur with those who say the word would be humility. Humility. False teaching is proud. It's contentious it's argumentative it puts others down it's critical in the worst and negative ways teaching of true the truth of god in christ is humble at its source and if there's no humility in its spokesman you have a right to wonder about that across many months and years if you straightforwardly study the word of god even your own daily reading of a chapter or something to just absorb the word you are acquiring the critical tools needed to discern what is true from what is false. Because you will see the patterns of what Scripture has to say and you will recognize the static in the air when a false message is being taught. Now, that doesn't say that you can stand up every time perhaps to a PhD who has his basis in study of Greek and Hebrew or something – But you can follow your good instincts and say, you know what, that just doesn't really sound biblical. Something's wrong there. I sense that that goes astray. And you know, let me say, this is a good reason for imbibing your main Bible teaching and doctrinal teaching from a local church because what you can do in the local church is examine the life of the spokesman over time right? How many TV superstar preachers are you able to see what they are when they're not in front of a camera? You may have no idea. They may be complete Jekyll and Hyde characters. In fact, many examples of that have been shown throughout history. At least in the local church, you can get some idea. Is there humility in my leader? Is he understanding of of? Other arguments and compassionate to people who are of less understanding and so on. Is there visibility of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life? Is he moral, or am I expecting that some skeleton's going to jump out of the closet and ruin his reputation? You can't find that out about people with that when you don't have some kind of lively connection. But in addition to these marks of Christian character and the fruit of the Spirit that can tell you whether a prophet is from Christ or not. Another test comes just from listening to the words of doctrines and, and phrases that he speaks about. Are, are there these kind of… sin, for example. What does he say about sin? Does he gloss over it? Does he rarely… I had a guy quit my church in Maryland once. He was a retired minister, a widower. man came to our church. He He liked the church. He liked the fellowship. He seemed to think it was great. He said, I want to join. This this is a good church for me to be part of. He was there about six months, and he came to see me. And he said, I'm sorry. You know, I want to let you know I'm going to withdraw my membership. I won't be here anymore. And I said, well, what's what's the problem? He said, well, pastor, I'm going to tell you face to face. All you ever talk about is sin. I probably was a little hurt by that at first, but the more I thought about it, I realized he came from a background where that subject really wasn't on the agenda most of the time. And he didn't necessarily see that people were born into this world bound in the night and the shackles of sin, needing a Savior to meet God's requirement and quench God's wrath. So he thought I taught about sin far too much. I guess all I can say to you is if I talk about any subject too much. I'll keep on talking about sin too much because you need to hear about it and you need to know its consequences. Does the one whose message you're trying to analyze speak about Christ as virgin-born, pre-existent, son of the highest, God come in flesh, is his Christology, as we call it, doctrine of Christ, biblical-sounding? Does he speak about Jesus, the Lamb of God, being the substitutionary atonement? Boy, there's a term that better be in the vocabulary. If it isn't, run in the opposite direction because he's sentimentalizing most likely the death of Christ and saying, oh, Christ was a great moral victim and, you know, the world swept through him, but, of course, his ideals survive. We're not sure whether his body actually rose, but his reputation did. Get out of town. Don't listen to that kind of thing. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great scholar of Scripture, said this, the falseness of a spiritual message may be betrayed and detected as readily by what the person does not say as by what they say. In other words, if a hell of judgment, if the wrath of God, if election and other thorny terms are never heard, head in the other direction because you're not hearing the biblical gospel if you don't hear essential biblical vocabulary words about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So listen to what is not heard as well as what is, and you will see falsehood being exposed. Well, thirdly, verses 21 to 23 of our text concludes this portion by taking a rather shocking turn. Now it's not just talking about false prophets, but they would be included, but it's generalizing more if you look at what is there. As Jesus, some would even treat this as a separate section, but I think it's linked to what goes before when Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. I am sure that this was totally shocking. What? What? How can anybody know that they're saved? How can I know that maybe I'm the the false one, maybe I'm the hypocrite who who says Jesus is my Lord, but it isn't really true, and I'm going to have a startling surprise at the final judgment day? Well, evidently it is possible, Jesus is saying, to reverence him by calling him Lord in a formal way, professing your faith before a church, even a Presbyterian church in America church, conservative Biblically, a church that, uh, you know, values the inerrancy of Scripture and its infallibility and everything else, that isn't going to save you or suffice when you stand before the Lord as your final judge because it apparently is possible that your testimony is superficially right but does not show evidence of a lively, living, obedient, seeking, loving relationship to Christ as savior, Remember, he's just talked about in previous verses these, this idea of two different pathways leading to two different destinations, the narrow gate and the wide way. One leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Is that for real? You might, it is implied here, even be the preacher ordained to expound the Word of God who somehow is used to sponsor a true revival in which hundreds of people gave their lives in genuine ways to Christ, and you are lost. I I am haunted by, haunted by the story of one of Billy Graham's earliest good friends in his Youth for Christ days when he was just making his reputation— And there was another man going out with him with Youth for Christ preaching. Most people said he was more gifted than Billy Graham. That both of them would come in and do a revival meeting or a youth meeting and preach. And this fellow was, wow. Everybody would say, yeah, that guy Graham wears loud ties and he's he's handsome, but he's a little different. But this other guy, whoa. That man died a number of years ago Having spent most of his adult life saying, I don't think I'm a Christian. I don't think I believe in supernatural salvation. I do believe in God, but I don't believe the message that I once preached with Billy Graham. And God had used that man to bring many people to the Lord. And he apparently is one who is ready to say openly, it was ready before he died, maybe I'll hear, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. James chapter 2 verse 19 has a passage where James says, there are devils who believe in Christ, but they don't bow before him as Lord. They know who he is. You remember the exorcisms of evil spirits in, the, in Jesus going about in his ministry? He would encounter a man inhabited by devils and they would shout at him or scream at him and say, we know who you are, leave us alone. And they fled from him. Devils have a knowledge of God, but they don't bow to him as Lord. And evidently, it's possible for human beings to do that same thing, Jesus is saying. Be careful that your profession is not a merely superficial thing that that has a a skin-deep bit of knowledge, but is not representing the depth of your heart and your mind and your soul in a relationship to Christ. So-called knowledge of Christ that is based merely on an academic interest, membership in a fine church. I heard secondhand, this isn't about somebody in this congregation, it came around the back of the barn like a third-hand story to me of someone who had come into a hardship in their life and they made a kind of sardonic uh, statement to some friends and said, huh, well, the suffering had come to their family and he said so much for having perfect attendance in sunday school in other words this person expected his sunday school attendance had something to do with favorable treatment from god i was pondering that one for days afterwards what a superficial concept that is knowledge of god that sees the christ of god come to earth as a man to offer himself back to his father, to quench the wrath of the father for sin is the kind of knowledge that Jesus desires and looks for. That which merely recognizes him as important somehow, a moral example somehow, a spiritual leader somehow, is not going to suffice at his judgment throne. As we close with this text for today, I would have you regard Jesus as the great evangelist here. Billy Graham was a great evangelist. Jesus is a far, far greater one. And he is acting as evangelist here, I think, to probe us and say, what is your relationship to me? Do you seek after me and treasure true biblical knowledge of me as your Lord? Do you hear the word of God preached or read it for yourself and not argue with it, and you don't say, oh, that, I don't believe that part, you know. Give me the New Testament without the miracles or something. Are you Thomas Jefferson with his penknife going through and cutting out everything you can't agree with? Or do you come to the Word of God and say, here is something that is so much greater than I. I come to Him as an empty vessel needing to be filled. I come to Christ as worthless, aimless, without substance, without a goal in my life, and he, I seek in him my all in all. One hymn writer expressed it in a phrase, and he said, there is one holy passion filling all his frame. He was referring to what Paul said in Philippians 3 when he wrote and said, my overwhelming desire is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and be identified with him in his death so I might somehow obtain to the resurrection from the dead. That is the knowledge of Jesus Christ that he must, he will recognize. A passion, a flame burning in your life, it doesn't mean you're all emotional, but it means you you recognize that there is one great thing that you need, and it is the salvation of the Son of God whom you call my Lord and my God. Remember how Thomas the doubter fell down before him with his fingers on the wounds? He didn't believe until he saw those, and when he saw those, he said, my Lord, my God. Jesus knew what he was saying. He wants to hear it from you. He probably has heard it from most of you here, some verbal profession, joining the church. Yes, I acknowledge Jesus. But is it a passionate life relationship that you can say, he, Christ, is the most important person in my universe? That's what he recognizes. There's an engraved stone memorial, I'm told. I've not seen it. In a cathedral in Lubeck, Germany. Let me close with giving you the words that are on that stone. There it reads, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me beautiful and love me not. So if I condemn you, blame me not. The mind of Christ, our Savior and our Father today, You didn't give us something soothing from Jesus. You gave us something demanding. But what a sweet demand that we would seek after him who is the greatest person in all the universe. Let us go from here today, each one thinking, what does it mean that I call him Lord? It is our great desire, Father, not because of who we are or what we've done, to be found faithful in reverencing him, seeking him, obeying him to the extent of our sinful abilities to do so by the Holy Spirit working in us. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen.